listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. We have we have a guest today who is huge. That's all I'm going to say. This gentleman is part of one of the biggest musical duos in the history of music. And if you don't believe me, look up their look up their sales and their popularity. And from Air Supply, my guest is Graham Russell. How you doing, Graham? Good morning, Steve. How are you? Good. I, I want to start off by asking you, do you ever just sit back and think of the millions and millions of people you have touched with your music? And it goes to weddings, breakups, proms. I mean, my high school sweetheart turned me on to Air Supply. She was a huge fan. This is in 1980. But do you ever just sit back and go, oh, my God, I've touched so many people? You know, I do quite often, actually, probably more often than I should, uh, because, you know, we certainly uh, filled that void in the 1980s. You know, we were the band that, you know, we were perceived as a very romantic band. The music's very romantic, but none of it was by design. It was just by default, really. But I think we certainly filled that void, although that wasn't our intention. Our intention was just to be like any other group, just to, you know, write and record and, and perform wherever we could. Uh, but, you know, we, gradually over a few years, we became that band that people would listen to for a long time. And I think because of the nature of the music, you know, because it was very simple music, but it had a profound effect on people. Uh, but it's, it's a nice, it's a nice thing to have during your career. And I think that's what's kept us there in people's consciousness for so many years because the music the songs just don't go away you know they just keep coming back so i think that's what it is but it's a great thing at the same time you know now what got you into music i mean as a kid were you drawn to music you know did you see a certain band i mean what got you on this path to becoming a great songwriter and musician well i started writing songs very early i think i was like 12 years old and I didn't, obviously, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what I was doing or how to write a song. I didn't even know they were songs. I just was writing all these things down. And then in 1964, the first band I ever saw live was the Beatles. So, you know, it, it changed my whole life. And I went, oh, OK, now I get it. Uh, and I thought to myself, wow, I'd like to do that. You know, that that that's right up my street. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, there's a lot of years had to go by and I got in the trenches. Once I knew that I was writing songs and once I saw the Beatles, I thought, oh, OK, now it all makes sense. And so I just continued to do it um, in the face of a lot of opposition. People would say, oh, you know, you're wasting your time. You know, uh, what are you doing? And But I couldn't stop it. I just was compelled to, to write songs, even at that as a very young teenager. Um, and of course, now I later on I I understood why that was happening, but I didn't at the time because I didn't think about it. I just wanted to do it. I just had to write songs. Um, if I didn't write three or four songs every single week, I I didn't think that I was getting anywhere. You know, I had to keep doing it to get better and to understand how it's done. And so I did that, and I wrote, you know. Every single week for years and years, I wrote three or four songs and they were probably uh, terrible, you know, but uh, 
you just keep going then you figure it out and you go oh that's kind of nice and then you it's it's an experience you know and i don't think uh songwriters certainly like myself you never really understand how to write a song it just happens uh, I mean, I, I couldn't tell anyone how to write a song. I can tell them how to sit down and what a song contains. But the way it comes about is very, it's just inspirational. So you can't put a handle on it because it's either there or it isn't. But when it is, it's a, an incredible feeling, you know. But that feeling when it's not there is terrible, you know, because you think, oh, I'm, uh, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. Uh, but then, you know, you let it go and then it comes back. So it's kind of that uh, push-pull, love-hate thing that, that I've grown to love during my career. You know, I just love it. I love songs and I love writing songs, you know. Well, it's always it's fascinating, you know, because I've done some writing. I used to do comedy, so I'd write jokes. And then sometimes oh. you, you sit there and you write something and you go, this just isn't funny. And then you go, this... I'm not funny anymore. And then you're about to go on stage and you're going, none of this is funny. Then you get up and it works. For you, if you sat there and wrote a song and just said to yourself, I don't think it's that good. Do you just scrap it and say something will come along better? Or how do you get back on the horse? Because we get very frustrated. You know, we get very sensitive when we, when we write something we don't like. Yeah. Well, after all these years, you know, I've been writing songs now for over like, 55 years or something but there are times when I, I write something and I begin it and I think oh that's really cool and then a few minutes later it doesn't fire me up anymore and in that instance I've learned to let it go and I'll just forget about it and I, I probably won't go back to it uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in that inspiration certainly for me and I know that different songwriters have different methods but for me, I'm a big believer that inspiration uh, comes at a certain time, but it, it comes in for a very short time. And I've learned to know when it's when it's coming and when it's there. It's kind of a feeling that you can't, I can't describe. I'm sure it's the same with you if you're writing jokes and things, which I could never do. I can't imagine sitting down and writing a joke. But I know when it, I know when it's there, and I want to go to my piano, and I want to play my guitar, and. The instrument, the piano or guitar, is just full of ideas. And it, I'm just the medium. I have to coax it out of the instrument. Uh, and I've become very good, of, very good at that when I know that it's there. Because the it, uh, for me, floats around and I can, I can hear it and I can feel it's there. And then I'll coax it out. And once it comes out, it has to happen very quickly for me uh, because I know that it's going to go. And if I don't utilize it while it's there, it's going to get fed up with me and it'll leave. And so consequently, I write very quickly. I write my songs really quickly because of that, because I'm uh, I'm not worried, but I think, well, if I don't get this song out, it's going to go. But once I've got the, the dots from the instrument, if you like, then when it goes, I can join those dots, but I need all the information first. Uh, and it's a it's an incredible moment when you know you've got a song that's just going to be really cool, and I get really excited. And I sometimes I stop, sometimes I I'm brought to tears because I know it's a, it's going to be a great song, and I just love that process of 
of getting inside the song and writing the lyrics as I'm writing the music. Um, and it's a great thing. But to answer your question, if it's how do you get back on that track if you, you feel it's not going anywhere? I've also learned over the years to not bother about it to because if it's not there, it's not there. And, you, you know, I'm not the kind of person that will, will persevere with a song and say, God, I need to write a song. It's got to come. I, I'm the opposite. I'll, I, if it's not there, it's not there for me. And I'll just walk away and I'll put my guitar down. I may not play it for a week. Uh, but I know when it's time to play it. Uh, so I've learned the uh, machinations of, of my muse, if you like. Uh, and I know when it's there, when it's not, and when it's playing with me, and when it wants me to just play. Sometimes it's nice just to sit at the piano and just play with no real goal in mind. Uh, and it's fun, funnily enough, when that happens, I always write something. You know, I've learned to as I said, to let it go. You can't hang on to a song and, and force it. It's like the farmer that wants his crops to grow faster, so he pulls them out of the ground when they're a little seed, and, of course, it destroys everything. So I've learned that over the many, many years and experience. I've kind of learned how to do, deal with it, you know. Now, is there any songs in Air Supply's history that when you wrote it, you knew it was going to be a hit and it came to fruition and became a hit. And is there any ones that when you wrote it, you said, hell yeah, this is going to be a hit. And then you went, right. what the hell happened? I think the first one, the first song was our very first song we ever recorded. And we were still in superstar, which was love and other bruises. And it really wasn't released in the, in the U S only on an album many years later, but that was our first Australian hit. And when I wrote that song, I thought, yeah, this has really got something. This is, it's just got that X factor, if you like. And another one was All Out of Love. I, I knew when I finished that song, and that only took half an hour to write, I knew that had something. It had that factor, that hidden factor again. And I know when a song's got that because I've learned, once again, it's experience, I've learned how to recognize it. I haven't learned how to create it because if I if I knew how it how it arrives, I would do it in every song. But it doesn't. Uh, some song they're all different, but when that a song's got that feeling about it, I know and I get chills. And I remember with all out of love, uh, I thought, yeah, this is really going to be cool. It's got something. And in the original version of that song, there was a ninety second. Uh, orchestral piece in the middle and I, and that was the part that I really liked <laughs> and when we went to the studio uh, to record it the producer said oh, you know we've got to leave that part out it's too long which he and he was right so we trimmed it down and we ended up with the song that everyone knows but I was really bummed about the instrumental piece because it was orchestral and it was really cool it was like a movie very fast and epic and I had to lose that. And I thought, oh, no, we're losing half the song. But we, we weren't. We were making the song even better, which is the song everybody knows now. But it, it's funny. I do get that feeling when I'm writing a song. And I just know that it's got something, you know. I, and it's a great feeling. It's that, that's the reward. The reward with songwriting for me isn't monetary or uh, uh, fame or any of that stuff. It's just that feeling knowing you've, 
you've created something that's that you hope is going to last for a long time. Now you said you wrote that song in thirty minutes. Now yeah. when you when you do something like that, because that's an amazing short time to write a great song. Do you sit there and start leaving and second guessing yourself, saying, "Okay, I got to add to it." Like you know, how people write in drafts. When you write something right. in thirty minutes, do you ever just sit there and go, "That was too easy." I have to go back and fix it, or how do you handle that? Well, once again, I kind of know. When, for instance, when I sit at a piano and that muse is there, and I know something's going on, you know, when I get that feeling, I don't immediately sit at the piano because I want to make sure I've got my my recorder on, I've got a pen and paper. I want to make have all my tools with me because I'm going to need them. But when I finally sit at the piano, and it may be a few minutes later, I don't think, I just let it go, and I just start playing. And I have no idea what I'm going to play, or when I'm going to play it, or what chords are going to follow what. I, it, I just play it, and it's all there. Um, if, if, it, if there's a verse, like for instance, and all I'd love, I'm lying alone with my head on the phone. I mean, after that, the, the chorus just had to come in. And... I didn't even think about the chorus. I just let it fall out, and that's the way it came. And that's I like to write that way because, once again, because of inspiration striking. It's like fishing, you know. You 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 got that bait in the water. Then suddenly that fish bites, and you got to reel it in. And it's it's kind of like that with me. But uh, but that's the way I write. And a lot of other writers that, that I know, they're all different. They all have a different technique that's unique to them. But that's the way I like to do it. And when I've written a song, for instance, very quickly, I do. I'll stop, and I know it's on my recorder, and I think, God, I thought that was great, but when I play it back, maybe it's not going to be great. And so I go, oh, God, I, I, I can't listen to it right now because it may be terrible. But, of course, when I listen back and I go, oh, yeah, it's all there, and then then I flush it all out. Once the song is there, the chords and usually the lyrics, then I'll go and tweak everything and maybe change a word here and there. And uh, then I'll know what chords I'm playing. I go, oh, that's that's a weird chord. Uh, and then I'll just go and do that, you know. So it's kind of, it's such a, a fun thing to do. Uh, it really is. And I can't really describe it. It's, I just love it to death, you know. And I'm so fortunate that uh, I was chosen to be one of those. I mean, there are millions of songwriters, but you know, I was able. I'm able to to do what I love to do, and to earn a living, and to you know, carry on with writing more and more songs, which I want to do. I'd like to write another thousand songs before I'm not around anymore. You know. Now, when you write, because you know, Russell is. You know, you sing with Russell. When you're writing, yeah. do you? I'm sure it's changed over the years, but do you envision his voice as you write, or do you just write lyrics and then say, when we go to play this, we'll figure out who will sing what and so on? Right. That's a good question. Uh, normally, well, every time if I write a song, uh, I, I, I'll record it, I'll go and do a demo of it pretty quickly, and I usually end up playing most of the instruments or I'll call somebody in that I, I use frequently uh, and I'll do a demo of it and so consequently I'm singing everything and then when I send I don't send it to Russell till 
it's kind of in great shape and, and I'm singing it. But if it's really high, uh, usually I don't see it. I can't get up very high. They leave that to Russell. Uh, and then I'll send it to him and I'll say, OK, what do you think about this? And always he'll say, wow, this is, a, this is great. And often he'll say, I think you should sing that there. And I'll say, well, I think you should sing it. <laughs> so instead of the other one, normally groups are, are trying to fight for the, the spotlight and for who's going to sing the lead. But that doesn't interest me at all. Um, I just want to write the songs. And so I, I usually try to get Russell to sing as much as, as he can. Uh, but often it's the two of us. And an example, when we were recording All Out of Love, I wanted Russell to sing the whole thing. And the producer, Harry Maslin, you know, he's, Russell went in to sing it and and it sounded pretty good. And he, and he, Russell said, God, it doesn't feel, it's not sitting with me. He said, you should sing it, the verses. And I said, well, it's a little high for me, which it was. Uh, but anyway, I went in and I tried it. And Harry, the producer, and Russell said, that's it. He said, you've got to sing it. So I, th- I said, okay. But I said, Russell has to sing the choruses, which he did. But the two of us singing created that symmetry. And it was like that in Lost in Love, too where I sang the melody and Russell sang the harmony, but together we really created that third indivisible part that you can't describe. Uh, so that's how we work in the studio. So there's no real rule about who's going to sing what. Uh, it's just whatever sounds better, you know, and Russell's the first one to say that, you know. Sometimes it suits my voice. Sometimes his is better. More often than not, it's his voice. But I never write for him or for myself I just write the song and I and quite often I go oh wow this is high you know the key's high and but if I try to bring the key down it loses something and uh, you wouldn't think it would because it's the same song in a different key but it loses some impetus it loses a factor and uh, and so I have to leave it usually in the original key and we figure out a way who's going to sing it usually it's Russell now, you've been writing songs for years. When you guys met, I know you met in Australia, which you had moved to Australia, right? Yes, correct. Okay, now you had met, did you think, was there instantaneous that you said, we're a mesh? Like, you know, it's like sometimes people just know. Did you guys yeah. know that you were right for each other at that time? Uh, I think we did. There was something going on, you know, how it happened we were in Jesus Christ Superstar and we all, all the whole company, there was 34 of us, I think, all sat down for the first sing-through with the musical director and we sang uh, Heaven on Your Mind, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar because it's the easiest thing in the show. And we all sang and it just sounded amazing, you know. And I was, you know, the green guy. I didn't, I'd never been in a show before. I really didn't think I could sing that well. But this guy next to me, when we sang, just had this voice that just cut through like a knife. And after that rehearsal, I turned to him and I said, well, I said, wow, you've got an amazing voice. And he said, oh, thank you. You know, and I said, you know, my name's uh, my name's Graham Russell. And uh, he said, oh, thank you. He said, my name's Russell Hitchcock. And he said, we've got the same name. And at that moment, something happened. Uh, he was just super nice, you know. But I didn't know at that moment, but he and I were pretty much the only two people that didn't know anybody in the show. 
in in shows, as I learned quickly, uh, people from other shows come. They keep working in shows, so a lot of the cast knew each other, except him and I. We didn't know anybody, so we were kind of the the ugly ducklings in the corner that nobody wanted to know. And uh, we really were. We were kind of freaked out of it. We didn't know what was doing going on. And uh, you know, we had a, 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 the first dance moves. You know, neither of us were accomplished dancers by any shot of the imagination. But we started the, the dance moves and I fell over in about five minutes. I fell over and sprained my ankle really bad. And I thought, oh, that, that figures I'm out of the show, you know, the first day. But Russell, after the vocal rehearsal, Russell came to my aid and he, he picked me up because I couldn't put weight on it. And he took me over to a, a chair and, and I had it bandaged, you know, and I thought, God, I'm out of the show. But he was the first one to come to my aid and the the producer of the show came over to me and I thought he was going to fire me. And he said, you know, you're going to be fine. Just don't do anything today and just keep it, you know, look after it, put weight on it and strap it up. And I was fine, but that went a long way that he came to my rescue, you know. Uh, but we became very good friends very quickly. I mean, we figured out we were both Beatles fans and we both saw them live when in 1964. Uh, which was, I thought, was an incredible coincidence. Um, we're born in the same month, uh, three days apart. So we had a lot going for us. But at that moment, when I went into Superstar, I had a kind of a plan. I thought, well, I'm going to be in this show for maybe two years. I've got two years to really create something. Uh, I didn't know what it was going to be, but I, I need to create something because I didn't want to go back to my former employment i mean i was delivering bread in a van you know i didn't want to go back to that i thought this is my stepping stone to do something so i had 18 months but when i met russell i thought to myself that's the first sign you know because i didn't i didn't have a lot of confidence in my voice uh, i was never a lead singer i'm a songwriter that sings but russell is a lead singer and i was very aware of that and so i thought here's the first chess move on the board you know uh, we became great friends and we started to sing within a few days we were singing some of my songs and uh, and we just got on great together and that was really the beginning of it and once when we once we had we got to know each other really well and we were singing together we were kind of inseparable you know we in the dressing boys chorus room we sat next to each other and we were singing all the time you know we were singing all kinds of songs you know now, when you, now first, when, you, when you first met, was it hard to sit there and share your music with him? Because, you know, it's something new to you. I mean, because you're saying you're sharing with someone you met and you respect. Was it hard, and were you worried what he would think? At, at first, I thought, uh, well, maybe he won't like this song or, or like my songs, you know. Uh, but he did straight away. In fact, I was playing a song, which became our first single there. I was just playing it in the dressing room on my own. And there was no nobody around. And Russell walked in. And our chorus dressing room held about 12 guys. There was nobody there. And so I got my guitar out. And then in comes Russell. And he says, what's that song? He says, I haven't heard that before. I said, it's one of my songs, you know. And he said, wow. And he jumped in and he started singing with me. He started singing a harmony. Um, the same way that we 
do harmonies now. We don't plan it out or write it out. We just do it. We just, it's kind of a second nature. But he jumped in, and as soon as he jumped in on the song, it just sounded so good. I went, oh, wow, there's something going on here. And then gradually, the the boy, the guys would come back in one by one, and they'd all sit around, and they'd say, wow, you guys sound really good. And we kind of knew straight away that we, we just sounded really good. You know, when you hear a Simon and Garfunkel, certainly in their earlier years, just the two of them in particular, they sound amazing. You know, it was something like that. It was almost like we'd been singing together for a long time, but we really hadn't. That was the first time. And yet people were coming in the dressing room uh, and sitting around going, wow, you guys sound amazing. So we had a lot of uh, confidence straight away. But I've never been shy about playing a new song to people because I'd done it since a young teenager. Even at home, I'd get my sisters and I'd say, oh, I just wrote another song. I want you to listen to it. So I wasn't shy about playing songs uh, to people. Uh, it was quite the opposite. I wanted to. So I was very forward and then I'd say, okay, I've written another song. And he'd say, well, let me hear it. And this just went on for the whole time in Superstar. And so we created a little act together because Superstar in those days carried a lot of weight, the name of it. Uh, and I used to call around and say, you know, my name's Graham Russell and I've got, uh, I'm with Superstar. And they go, oh, wow. Um, I'd say, I've got a little, a little act. We'd love to come and play, you know, in your club late after the Superstar would finish. So we were working all the time after Superstar. We had this little act and uh, and we sounded great, you know, and people really liked it. So already we were getting experience. It's, you know, when I look back at it now, it's almost as if uh, it was predestined that we start working together straight away. Because during our early career, we were so lucky you know, we we had a our first record. We put our first record out. It went straight to number one. The the album came out. We made an album in a week. The album came out. The album goes to number one. Rod Stewart uh, comes to Australia to do a national tour, and we had the number one album and single. So we were we got to open for Rod Stewart because we were the hit band of the moment. And you got to remember, we were only three months old at this point. The band. <laughs> We were opening for the biggest act in the world and we were freaked out. We were like, whoa. So we we go and play our first show in Adelaide for Rod and we come back in our dressing room and Rod's in our dressing room and he says to us, he said, hi, you know, uh, he said, you sound great. He said, I'd love you to open for me next year in the US. And we're like, what? You know, we thought he was, he was being, uh, making a joke. But, you know, he wasn't, and and we did, you know, and we did it. And so it, we were kind of thrown to the lions straight away because, we, Russ and I both thought this, we needed to get experience, we needed to pull it together, become good with our instruments um, with, and create a show because of what was in store for us later on. But, of course, we had no idea that that was coming, but that's what we thought, you know, we're... We're in Superstar, then we're opening for Rod. Then a couple of years later, we had more hits in Australia. Then we came to the US and then it just exploded. So it was the weirdest journey, you know, it really was. Well, you started in Superstar, but I know you write musicals now. Is that because you remember 
how, where you got your start? Is that like paying homage to your beginnings? Because if it wasn't for Superstar, you would have never met, and you you don't know what your career would have been, but Air Supply wouldn't have been what they are. Yeah, it, it was definitely Superstar that, that triggered that in, in myself. You know, I, I, I played Peter, um, one of the apostles that is in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, according to the Bible and all that. And it's, you know, the three apostles lie on, on stage and they because they're pretending to be drunk while Jesus is, is say, singing this prayer to God, which is this the most beautiful piece of music, you know, Gethsemane. I'm sure you've heard it, but it's just amazing. So I used to be lying asleep, pretending to be asleep, and I'd have my ear to the stage and the bass and the strings of this song. I would hear it every night and it would just fill my whole body. And I would, sometimes I'd be in tears. And that was every night. So I really got a big dose of the musical genre. And uh, and it, it never went away. And I thought, God, one day I'm going to do this too. I can I can write musicals. Maybe not as good as Lloyd Webber, but I, I need to do that. And so I, I started even in those days, you know. But now I'm doing it uh, with a different feeling now. I'm doing it because I love it. I haven't had any great success yet, but, you know, that that's not the important thing. I just love writing musicals now, you know. So when you write a musical, are you doing the lyrics and the score and then someone else gives you the story? Or how does that all mesh together? Like, how do you work with a producer and a director, I'm guessing? Um... I write. I, I don't write the story. No, I write the music and the lyrics. But what I've found really interesting for me in this stage of my career, I love writing music for a story that somebody gives me. Like when I uh, agree to write another musical with whoever, uh, you know, I, I I have to get inspired by the story first. And if I like the story, I go to another level where I go. I start thinking about it, and then once I. I get my own green flag. I'll go, okay, I'm going to start on this. But I love writing, getting a scene that's, and there's certain things happening in the scene. And then I can, I create the music around that scene. And I really like that. It's totally different than writing for a rock and roll band. Um, it's, it's more difficult, I think, with the, the musical genre because you have parameters, you have boundaries. And you have to project the story forward. Uh, you can't just write a song and stick it in and change the characters' names. You have to think about the scene. So it's a it's a, a lot more intellectual, I think. You know, whereas uh, a rock and a song for a rock and roll band or for Esplay anyway, uh, there really are no parameters. You know, it's there's no the canvas is is blank, and so I can create whatever I want. You know, but the musical is more. It's a little more military. I have to follow certain rules and regulations, but still have the freedom to create something really unique and bizarre. You know? Now, in the early days, Clive Davis had a was very involved with you guys. How yeah. how did you meet him? How did and and what part? Because I just watched a documentary on him, and he's just an amazing person. How yeah. how did that come about? What was the relationship? Well, in in nineteen. 19- in 1980, very, well, actually, it was 79, Lost in Love had already been a hit in Australia two years before. And it was a hit, but we still weren't making any money. And uh, I went to 
England to try and sell some songs. And there was this publishing convention in Cannes in the south of France. And it sounds very exotic, but for me it wasn't. I went over on a ferry and I was in a really cheap little grotty hotel. And I just wanted to try and sell some songs. I was destitute. I was broke. Russell was back in Australia making sandwiches and, and working in that kind of industry. And uh, I got there and I got food poisoning. And I was laid up for like three days and I couldn't get out of bed. I was just, it was terrible. I felt awful. I wanted to die. And by the time I recovered enough to get out of bed and walk down the street, the, the convention had finished. It had gone. You know, I'd missed it. I'd missed my opportunity. And there were all these magazines blowing down the street like a, a Tarantino movie, you know, old papers and, and rappers and things. And I thought, oh, that's great. You know, there's nothing going on. The place was deserted. And I found this magazine, uh, uh, either a record record world, world or record mirror or something. It's like Billboard, you know, it's gone now. And I, I picked it up because it was free. And it says, you know, Mid-M, you know, was a great success, all this. And uh, on the front cover of the magazine, it said, Lost, it said, Lost in Love, destined to go top five. And I thought, oh, that's great. There's a band now that's written a song called Lost in Love. It's going to be a big hit. So that's, I'm screwed, you know. And it said, turn to page five for details. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll see what's going on. I turned to page five and there's a picture of Russell and myself. Um, so unbeknown to us, Clive had heard Lost in Love. It came on his desk, I don't know how, in the myriad of singles he must be listening to. He'd heard it. He'd made a deal with our management and our record company to license the song. And it, he'd, he'd put it out, you know, nobody knew. And I thought, that's really weird. And I got a bit annoyed. I thought, God, you know, it's my song. And how can they put it out without me? So I called Clive up and I, re I reversed, I didn't have any money. I reversed the charges, you know, I said, I want to speak to Clive Davis. I, I knew he was, you know, kind of famous, but I didn't know to what degree or what he really did. And I called Arista in New York, I reversed the charges. And I said, I want to speak to Clive Davis. And they said, who is it? I said, it's Graham Russell from Air Supply. And they, they put me through to him and they said, hello. He says, this is Clive Davis. I said, this is Graham from Air Supply. I'm a, I just saw a thing that, you know, you've released Lost in Love. He says, yeah, yeah. He said, he said, where are you? I said, I'm in Cannes, you know. He said, what are you doing there? He says, get back to Australia and make, you've got to make an album. He said, Lost in Love's going to go all the way. And I went, what do you mean? He said, it's going to be a huge hit. He said, you've got to get out of there right now. So I managed to get on a plane, but I wanted to make sure this was for real. So I went the long way around because it's cheaper. I went, I stopped just about every port in, in the world. And I, end, I went to New York and I, and I was able to go to Arista and I just went up. And I remember going to his office and I said, I'm Graham Russell, can I see Clive Davis? And they said, do you have an appointment? I says, no. And <laughs> Clive comes out and he says, what are you doing here? And I, I said, I wanted to meet you, make sure it's real, you know. So we had, we had lunch and he said, and he just told me what he thought was going to happen. And he said, uh, 
you've got to get back to Australia and make the album, which I did. But we had a great conversation, but that was my first introduction to Clive. And funnily enough, about two weeks ago, we did that Quarantunes, which is Clive's show. I don't know if you were aware of that. Yeah. He had all his, it was a Zoom thing. And I haven't spoken to Clive for maybe 20 years. And then suddenly, <laughs> I was driving near my home two weeks ago. I get his phone call from New York. And uh, I didn't recognize the number, so I, I thought it was a spam. And he called me back. So I picked it up. And, he's, and he, he said, this is Clive Davis. And I went, whoa. And he said, is this Graham? I said, yeah. So we had a chat. I said, how are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And he said, will you come on my show, you know, like in a few days, which we did. You know, we did a live thing. But it was weird how I haven't spoken to him for 20 years. Then suddenly he just came out of the woodwork. And so, but he was really nice. He said, you know, we haven't spoken to each other for a long time. But he said, but now we're in touch again. And here's my, my cell number. He said, call me anytime and we did the show and we chatted and I called him the next morning and so it was nice to reignite that relationship because he was so instrumental in our success I mean majorly so he he just told you what was going to happen and it happened you know he said uh, he said lost in love's going all the way and then he picked all out of love as the next single and he just said yeah it's it's going to happen. He says, you're going to be, you're on a streak now. He says, you're going to go all the way. And he was right. What do you think was it, what was it about your sound that America just snapped you up? I mean, and I know you have Clyde behind you and they're, they're quality, they're good songs. But what do you personally think when you look back and go, here's why we made it? It was before lots of videos. You know, it wasn't the 80s generation. I mean, like later in the 80s, all the videos made it. What do you think made you guys just become really loved yeah you know i think about that we both do quite often i think there are a few factors involved uh one factor certainly was it was january in a new decade and historically as i found out later on people are ready for something at the turn of a decade you know lost in love was released i think january 17th so it was right there it was a new decade everybody was ready for something different and we were at the top of the list and clive put that record out and obviously he shopped it to everyone but they everybody just was attracted to it. it was like a magnet you couldn't listen to a radio you couldn't turn a radio on without hearing lost in love every few minutes but i think too we were from australia we were kind of it was the beginning of that australian craze if you like there was Olivia Newton-John who was huge and you know it was the sun the beach Australia it hadn't been, really been exploited Australia we were from the other side of, of the of the world from down under so that was attractive but at the same time you know we I think we were very innocent we really didn't know what we were doing we worked in Australia in the trenches you know in pubs and stuff for four years uh, but it, in the U.S., when we came there, we were like all eyes. It's like, wow, you know, this is amazing, you know. Um, and we were just innocent. The innocence, I, I think, really helped us out. Plus, the thing with Lost in Love, the, the record, it just sounded so good. You couldn't deny it, you know. When it came on, when you hear that guitar intro, it just pulled you in. And I don't know why, because... 
it's probably the simplest song I've ever written. There's only four chords in the whole song. It, there's no bridge. There's just a verse and a chorus. There's, and it just keeps going round and going round. And it, if it's not the verse, it's the chorus. And it just rolls, you know. Like if Clive said to us, you know, he said, people will play this song when they're in their car on the freeway. And he said, it's just a breezy song. And people just went for it. And I don't know any other reason why they would, because they didn't know who we were. So it wasn't like, oh, this guy's handsome, that guy's tall, that guy's not so tall. Uh, they didn't know who we were. They didn't know what we looked like. It was the song. But then when we finally, when we came over to tour, then they got to know, put the face to the music. Um, so that, that kind of propelled it even more, I think, because now oh, that, that's those guys, you know. One guy's really tall and blonde. The other guy's is not so tall and he's dockhead, you know. So we kind of uh, we kind of matched. You know? What what is it like? And I'm sure you've seen this countless times to be on stage. And I know you've seen women crying because they're just so <laughs> enthralled with you, or that song just hits them. How do you like? Do you ever sit there and go like that reaction you just gave me? You laugh. Do you ever sit there and go? Uh, I'm sort of, it's sort of funny to me. I mean, what do you, what goes through your mind? You know, it's, it's funny. I mean, we ask the fans why they, why they do that or why they keep coming to see us. Some people have seen us over a thousand times and, and we know a lot of the fans' faces from from the stage into the audience and we acknowledge them, you know, and uh, they just have a great time. But I think if they're crying and they do, or feeling that those emotions, it's we just trigger it it's not about us that they're crying they're they're reliving emotions that have made them cry in the past because if there's a beautiful song for instance you know you know if i was to hear beethoven's moonlight sonata which is so so beautiful i I would start crying because it's that kind of thing that not that we're anything like beethoven but i think our music certainly triggers emotions and that's not, once again, by design. We don't, I don't sit down and say, okay, I know that if I put these two chords together, they're going to cry. That's, that's the furthest from the truth. I think because the songs are very genuine, they come from a, a genuine place. I never sit down to try and make, put a song together to create a song with pieces. I don't do that. So the songs have a, 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 an entirety from beginning to end. And I think they feel that, they feel the vocals are very passionate. Uh, we really mean it. You know, we're not faking it or trying to say to people, hey, we love you, man, and all that. I mean, we really enjoy and love being on stage. And it's the audience that has allowed us to do that because they've supported us for 45 years. And we've, we're very aware that it, it could be a million other bands, but they've they support us and they love what we do so it creates this fission we love them too and they come to see us and, and we just try to give them the best we can you know so it's this beautiful relationship between them and us that's existed from the beginning of our career and i don't know if there i mean i'm sure there are many artists that have that relationship but not as many as you would think i don't i'm feeling now you you last year you, you last year you came out with the last lost year, and lost experience. experience. 
I'm sorry, I didn't get that. Last year, you came out with a love, uh, Lost in Love experience, and you played with an orchestra. Now, it seems like all these bands are now playing with the Prague Philharmonic. <laughs> what drew you to that, yeah. and what kind of experience was that? Especially because you wrote the songs, and now they're being played yeah. differently. Yeah. Well, I, I think for any rock and roll band, if there's a band that songs are very, very conducive to an orchestra, it's ours. And I love playing with orchestras. And, you know, we'd done live albums before, but not like this. And a, a, we were in Vegas, and a friend of mine came up to me, and he was visiting from England. And he'd worked with the Prague Symphony, who are a famous, famous European orchestra, one of the best in the world. And he said, yeah, I've just been working with the Prague Symphony, writing some charts for them. And I said, wow, that's amazing. And I said, I'd love to work with them too. And he said, you know, are you serious? Because I can hook you up if you want to work with them. And I said, really? So he got hold of them and they had three days or four days available, like in the six months from that time. And uh, so we just booked them, you know, and we went over there and it was incredible because, you know, I'd never been to Prague before. And Prague's a very old city, of course. And the studio where, which is the studio was a very famous studio now on the walls as you're going in there's all these uh awards like oscars and things and there was one in particular that really struck me because uh, my favorite movie is lawrence of arabia you know and the score is just breathtaking and it was recorded in this room and i and the guy told me that he said you know lawrence of arabia was, was scored right here and so that really filled me with this real desire to bring something more modern like air supply to this beautiful rich cultured city and especially the studio and it was just a great time from the beginning to end and you know a lot of them didn't speak none of the players spoke english the there was the uh, the choir master and the uh, the musical director were there and the conductor and they spoke kind of broken english but when we played the songs back when we before you know we were at charts and everything, and they were looking over the charts, and they were they were go ah, oh! and they go oh yeah, I know this song. And so it was a great symbiotic thing going on, and we just had a great time. But when we got back to the US, uh, you know, there's always a danger that wherever you go to record, and then if you go out of the country and then come back, that it's not going to sound the same for whatever reason. And I've had that experience a few times. And I thought, God, I hope it's going to come back. And uh, so once again, we were in the studio and it was a very weird time. I thought, okay, push play. Let's see what we got. And it just sounded incredible. And I'm really very proud of this album because it's so big sounding and so lush. And But it's how I've always wanted to sound. And we've played with orchestras before, but they've never really, I've never felt it like this one. And I thought, this is it. So... And I thought, we'll always always have this album, the Experience album. And the reason why it's called the Experience, the Lost in Love Experience, because we do talk to our fans a lot. We have meet and greets during the day and evening during a show day. And I would say to them, uh, why do you keep coming back? What is it? Is it the song? Is it Russell's voice? Is it whatever, you know, the lights? Or And they say, it's not one thing. They say, it's everything. 
it's it's that moment and they would say it's an experience that you step into when you come in the theater and i went ah that's interesting so we said then it's the lost in love experience because it's a live record but it it's how we want to sound and how we always strive to sound is just like that record so it was so really the fans gave us this album you know now is is it harder is it harder for you to tour now because you're you've been around for a long time and you're you're older i mean is it you know you you guys do a lot of shows you're not like you're sitting there you're not doing 10 shows a year you probably do over 100 shows what you did is it harder now like what's the difference touring now than 20 years ago uh, well, I think 20 years ago, I mean, I just turned 70 uh, a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, uh, it, it's a little harder to tour now because I think, although we we do tour nicely now, you know, we're, we, we, uh, we, we go in a nice way. We, we very rarely do private planes. We go commercial, but we get nice seats and, and we're okay. But uh, there's a lot of people tour... Uh, touring not touring but on vacation there's a lot of people every plane until now of course every plane is full it's always full when you, when we're on tour um the airports are always full and you got it it's kind of a hustle and bustle you know and people are trying to eat and it, it never used to be like that but now it is and so it's a little different and uh you know it can be exhausting and you think well how can how can it be exhausting if you're just flying around and, and driving and traveling. But when people, when people like uh, relations or whatever, you know, or friends come out, they'll say for like a day or two days, they, they say, I don't know how you do it because they get totally exhausted. So you've got to get into a mindset and you've got to be fit to travel these days because it can be exhausting, you know. Uh, you just get into a zone but even though it's it is more tiring now, because we're older, I think that's the big factor. You so you have to balance that out with uh, eating well and exercising, and make making sure you don't do weird things, you know. Uh, and that's the secret, I think. But now, having not played a show since March 18th, uh, you know, I'm definitely would like to play again, simply because that's what I do best. Uh, uh, I like to play, you know, and we will soon, I'm sure, but it'll be different. I don't know how it'll be, but, uh, yeah, it's that necessary evil that you do. It's, uh, the older you get, the more difficult it gets, you know. Now, has the quarantine affected your creativity? No, actually, quite the opposite, because I started work on a new musical in late March when the virus hit and we, we knew we were off. I started the musical and I finished it about three weeks ago. So it's been great for me, uh, but I know a lot of other people have, uh, it's been different, you know, they're kind of bored and don't know what to do with themselves. I talked to some of my, the band occasionally and they're all going crazy, you know, and they say, well, what are you doing? I mean, it's okay for me because I've been at home and writing on my piano and guitar. So I've been, it's been great and recording, I've recorded, most of these songs for an, a new album. So I've, it's been great for me, but I, I'm fortunate also because where I live, it's, uh, I live in the mountains, so I've got a lot of space around me. I don't have to be cautious about uh, people around me because there aren't any. You know? right. <laughs> well, before, 
before we go, I want to ask you, what is your favorite Air Supply album? And can you even pick your favorite Air Supply song or a song that means something right here to you? Well, I think my, my favorite Air Supply album is the Lost in Love album, the, the first American one, we always call it, the one with Lost in Love and All Out of Love and Chances. Uh, um, because I think it's a great record and I'm really proud of it. And, you know, when Lost in Love came out and it was a big, big hit, the album wasn't out for a while. And then the album came and, you know, we had three big hits off that album. And, but often and still now, I would sit down and play the whole album and it's a really great album. You know, it may, it's not uh, it's not Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin or anything like that. But it's, it's a great record and it's very indicative of who we are and who we were at that time. That is full of great songs that I'm really proud of. And, and my, favorite, my favorite song is All Out of Love, certainly. It always has been because it was really, well, first of all, it was the first song I ever wrote on a piano. And secondly, it was the first song where I had that feeling we were talking about early in the interview, where you just know it's, it's gonna be a hit song you just know it and so it was the first one of that kind and i've always had a soft spot for it and of course now all these years later i certainly do because it's been a great uh it's just been a song that's really given me my lifestyle and you know allowed me to 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 create and to keep writing songs without worrying about finances or where i'm the next dollar is coming from it's been very kind to me and it's a song that more importantly it's a song that the whole world has embraced i mean you can go to any country in the world and if you say i'm all out of love they're going to finish the song for you <laughs> and that you know when we the first the, we were the first band to to tour in china you know in 96 i think and we were very concerned we thought oh it was great to be in china you know that forbidden communist place and we went there, and when we started to play, they just sang every word to every song. But when all, we always close our show with All Out of Love. And when we we did that, you know, because they had they traffic lights in a lot of Asian countries in, for the audience, you know. It's red is you don't clap. Uh, green, you can clap. But then amber, <laughs> and it sounds weird, right? Amber, you tone it down, then stop, you stop. Uh, the traffic lights you know, for all out love. Yeah, it's great. And then the, the amber came and then the stop, but they, they wouldn't stop <laughs> clapping. And they weren't allowed to stand up. There were maybe 50 uh, soldiers around the arena armed with AK-47s. And the, the, the crowd weren't allowed to stand up, you know. But when all out love came on, they stood up, you know. And <laughs> the soldiers, they go, God, what do I do? What do I do? Um, everybody stood up so it was kind of a, a breakthrough for us and it's nice to know that it was that song that kind of broke through those barriers and we got into a lot of trouble when we got back to the hotel there was all kind of dignitary saying oh you know you can't do this you can't do that the people of china don't allow that and i said well you know we're not chinese <laughs> <laughs> well Graham, I, I want to thank you for taking time today um i'm a fan people if you if you don't 
know who Air Supply is, you're not listening to my show, because I know everyone who listens to my show knows who damn Air Supply is. So people, uh, go <laughs> go buy their albums, look up their music. When they come in concert, it's funny, my friend was supposed to see you guys on a tour. My friend Kyrie Stubham was supposed to see you guys on a cruise, but the cruise got canceled. For It was oh, this yeah. year. So yeah. people, go see them. And check me out uh, at my website, coopertalk.net. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Follow me on Twitter, at coopertalk. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you.